perfect. Second. Okay, hello friends, and uh, welcome to another exciting members Haburash Yur. Today we have the privilege of having Rabbanit Halevi with us today in the first installment of her two-part series exploring contemporary social issues and perspectives offered by our Chachamim in response. Um, about our speaker, Rabbanit Devura is currently a PhD student and adjunct professor at Wurzweiler School of Social Work at Yeshiva University. She also works as an associate clinical social worker at psychiatric centers at San Diego. She was raised in the illustrious Carlin Stolen Hasidic community where her father, Rabbi Meir Goldberger, was the principal of the community's yeshiva. She underwent advanced studies at the Bet Yaakov Teacher Seminary, where she studied toward teacher certification, graduated summa cum laude with a bachelor's in behavioral science from Mercy College, and with a master's of social work from the Wurzweiler School of Social Work at Yeshiva University. And also for those who missed it, uh, we were honored to have an article but in our most recent journal, which is available on our website. Um, as usual, all our classes are recorded and available later on our website. If you have any questions, you can raise your hand or message in the chat box. Uh, please, God, there will be time for questions at the end. Uh, with that said, thank you, everyone, for joining. Uh, Benita, it is an honor to have you uh, with us, and the floor is yours. Uh, you're on mute, Rabanita. All right, take two. Shalom Aleichem. Are you able to hear me now? Okay, awesome. Uh, firstly, you. it's so nice to see so many familiar faces. So welcome back. It's so nice to see some unfamiliar faces. Um, and then obviously some blank screens. So welcome to you also. Uh, firstly, I just want to say thank you so much to uh, Rabbi Dweck, who is Mala Berosh of this Kabura, as well as to Sina and Avi, who tirelessly uh, work on this. How do I know that? Because I live about seven hours away from you. And if I'm getting messages at every single hour of the day, it must mean that Sina never goes to sleep. So I just want to give him a shout out and thank him. Uh, though I've never met Sina's wife, I am positive that nothing great happens without her. So I want to give her a shout out too. Um, and thank you. So um, last but not least, I want to thank uh, my husband who is on the screen. Who is not just my husband, um, which obviously I have bias, I think he's phenomenal, but he's really my most inspirational teacher. And much of the Torah that I know, much of the Torah that I'm going to be sharing with you, um, is Torah that I've been privileged to not just learn together, but see in action. Um, and I want to thank him. I also want to thank him, especially if you look at my source sheet. So all the sources are mine. Uh, that's a disclaimer. Not everything I say is something that he would necessarily say, but the formatting and really being able to make it look so beautiful is only thanks to him. It will probably take me another 10 years and a lot more technical skills to ever make things look this nice. So thank you so much. And a special shout out to my kids who are all sitting there and listening to the classes so that God willing one day, they're gonna be joining Chabura as well, um, both as teachers and students. They say there was a guy in a car, he's driving down the road, and as he's driving, he's gone home, you know, the music's blasting and windows are open. And he looks out on the side of the road, he sees Hashem Ishmo. There are two guys just on the old floor, stuffing grass into their mouth. So I got to pull over. He pulls over to the side of the road and he looks at him and says, hey guys, what are you doing? 
and they come and they're like scratched and scruffy. You can tell they haven't showered in days and they look at him and they say, you know, sir, we're starving. We haven't eaten in days. We don't have meals. We don't have shelter. So we're eating the grass. He looks at me and says, guys, get into my car. Why don't you come to my house? So one of the men looks and says, you know, that's so kind of you, but I have three kids who are over there eating some other grass. He says, you know, bring them along. So I also have a wife. Okay, bring them along. He puts everybody into the back of his car and he says, come, come to my house. They're driving, they get into the car. He turns the music down. And one of the men who was eating the grass looks and he says, you know, thank you so much. This is so kind of you to really, to take us in. So the driver looks at him and he says, yeah, of course, you know, in fact, I think you're going to love it because my front lawn has grass that's that much higher. You'll have so much more to eat. Now, today we're having a conversation about whose responsibility are the individuals of society that are vulnerable? Whose responsibility is it to make sure that people aren't eating grass on the side of the road, that people aren't dying in dumpsters because they have no shelter? Whose responsibility is it to make sure that the vulnerable don't fall into the category, if you look at the title, survival of the fittest, right? We look at the animal kingdom and we know, you know, a broken, we have birds at home. So it's fascinating when any of the birds are hurt, they immediately start getting very aggressive and they start showing a lot of power because they know that in the animal kingdom, it's really survival of the fittest. If you're not fit, you just won't make it tomorrow. You're not fit enough, you're somebody else's breakfast. And the question is, well, when it comes to human society, do we operate in the same way? Does it work that if you can make it to the top, no matter how, no matter what, so then you squash everybody road and you make it up there? Or is it the responsibility of those who have more to take care of those who have less? And if yes, whose responsibility is it? Is it my responsibility when I see somebody on the side of the road who's begging for money to stop, give them a dollar, take them into my house? Is it the community's responsibility? Is it the government's responsibility? Or is it nobody's? And that's the conversation I want us to have today. Now, it's going to be a three-part conversation. So the first one is historical context, okay? How we look at those who are in need. How we look at those who we would put into the category of vulnerable. That's our first historical context. And what does it look like to have what we know as a welfare state, which welfare is really the general well-being of people. Welfare state is normally referring to the government's uh, direct involvement in taking care of the vulnerable population. So we have our first conversation is historical context. The second half is two parts, which is a fascinating teshuva from Rabbi Chaim David Halevi on exactly this government's responsibility or lack of responsibility in social welfare. And that'll be two parts, one involving Tanakh and then the teshuva. So let me walk you through a little bit of history. Disclaimer, none of this is meant to be political. So I don't care if you're on the far right or the far left or the far middle. This is a conversation about society, right? We're not talking about who you did vote for, who you didn't vote for. Uh, I certainly don't get involved in my politics here in the, in the United States, and I'm definitely not going to get involved in yours. But I want to talk about a little bit of history. So you have, you know, well, we have the medieval era, 500 to 1500, where most of Europe, at least the Western side, is living under feudalism, which is a very rigid system. We have the 1500s, 1600s, uh, specifically in England, the 1600s is the Late 1500s, leading into the 1600s, pretty tough. We have famine, a lot of a huge economic depression. And the government realizes very quickly that with the feudal system falling, there's a lot more chaos. The system of where there's a king and a noble and the serfs and the manors and the, the powerful Catholic church is falling apart. 
and the people most vulnerable are falling through the cracks. So the widows, the orphans, the women, the incompetent. And this is where you have the creation of what's known as the Elizabethan laws or the poor laws. Um, by show of hands, anybody know what the poor laws of 1601 was? Okay, awesome. It always makes me sad when I ask people, like, do you know this Sacham, that Sacham? And then when I ask them, like, regular, you know, general stuff, I realize it's not that they're ignorant in Judaism, we're just all ignorant, curious. So that makes me at least happy that it's unanimous. The Elizabethan laws, as you can guess, was started by Queen Elizabeth I, um, which was really targeted at, and this is a major step, at figuring out what is government's involvement in taking care of the needy. And I want you to look at page number one. This is a subsection, okay? The laws are much longer, um, but I want you to look at a little section of the Elizabethan laws. So if you look at page one on the second column, the first column talks about the parishes and the different division of who's gonna take care of what, who's gonna collect funds. But if you look at the second paragraph of the bolded, it says, for setting to work of the children whose parents shall not by the say church, church wardens and overseers or the greater part of them be brought able to keep and maintain their children. So here, this is again, there are children who for whatever reason through poverty, illness, um, today we would say drug abuse and other forms of inability for parents to take care of children. This act is meant to take care of those children. And also for setting to work all such persons married or unmarried, having no means to maintain them or no ordinary and daily trade of life to get their living by. So here you have able-bodied people, but no employment. You have people who they're physically capable of going out to work, but there's nothing for them to work at. So we're gonna now try to get them into the workforce. And also to raise, week, raise weekly or otherwise, skip, go to the next bolded, a convenient stock of flax, hemp, wool, thread, iron, and other necessary wear and stuff to set the poor on work. So we see huge unemployment over here, right? We're just coming off years of famine, economic depression. There are thousands of people that are unemployed. So in addition to taking care of the here and now, we need clothing, shelter, food. Let's get people back on their feet so they don't need to stay forever dependent. The necessary relief of the lame, the impotent. What does the impotent mean? So this is where you have something fascinating. The Elizabethan laws in essence creates what we consider the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. Tell me who would be in the category of deserving poor. Who would you say, these are people that are deserving? Give me an example. The disabled. Okay, the disabled. Somebody who you look at them, yeah? They're missing an arm and the leg. And this was especially common. We're talking about when there was no regulation of factories, right? In the 1750s, people were all the time losing a major limb. So here we have somebody who's disabled. It's obvious to us that they need our help. So that's somebody who we say that they deserve, to, not that they deserve to be poor, but they deserve our compassion and kindness. Give me another example of somebody who would be a deserving poor. An orphan. Children. Sorry? Yeah, an orphan. Children, yeah. Children. An orphan. Somebody who doesn't have their parents to care for them. Right? How is a seven-year-old supposed to take care of themselves? I don't know. I, I meet 45-year-olds who still haven't gotten their act together. How in the world can we have somebody that young take care of themselves? So the orphans, again, we would put into the deserving category. Women, children, people suffering from physical disabilities. Now, these are people we understand why circumstances made them poor, and therefore we have compassion towards them. Talk to me about the undeserving poor. Who do we look at and say, no, you, you don't deserve to be poor, and therefore you don't deserve my help? 
Who would you put in that category? Mental ill, people that are sick. Mental health, right? People, it's, it's fascinating how many organizations there are to take care of people with physical illnesses, right? Somebody has cancer, they're gonna fly them across the world to Disneyland to take them on trips. Physical illnesses, because we see it, we understand it. So we have a tremendous amount of compassion. When it comes to mental health issues, it's just in your head. Just be happy. Right? How many people, imagine you told somebody diabetic, you don't need to take insulin, just think good thoughts. That would never make sense to us. Right? You tell somebody, don't do chemo anymore. I promise you, if you meditate every single day, you will be cured. Right? Why don't you take a few pills for anxiety? If, if we would treat physical illness like we treat mental illness, the world would be a disaster. But yes, uh, mental illness, right? They don't deserve. Get up, go out, work. The undeserving is a population that we've decided you're capable, you're able to work. I want you to look at page two. You'll notice there's a quote from a book written uh, by somebody, Waltner, Walter, uh, labeled from poor law to welfare state. He's actually a, a Jewish individual from Brooklyn who I believe moved out to somewhere in the Midwest and has exclusively been studying uh, welfare states. So the, if you look at the first bolded, the Elizabethan poor law, right? So this is source two, embodied the conflicting strain between the desire to reinforce the feudal structure and the increasing assumption by civil government of responsibility for the downtime. So you have this tug of war of, can we go back to the old model where everybody kind of does their own thing? Do we need the government involved? I want you to look at the second quote. More important, vagrants refusing work could be committed to a house of correction. So here we have the division, the deserving we will take care of. We'll give you clothing, shelter, housing. We'll set up organizations for you. But if you, dear to be from the group we decided doesn't deserve our compassion, you could be committed to a house of correction where they would they whipped, branded, or put in pillories and stoned, or even put to death. And the measure did not provide for the right of appeal by the recipients or potential recipients of relief if they felt aggrieved. So if society judged you, you came to the office and said, hey, I don't have work, I don't have food, I don't have shelter. And the government looked at you or the people in charge looked and said, you, you look capable to me. I don't understand why you can't work. I don't understand why you can't take care of yourself. It's because of your misdeeds. And therefore we have the right not just to judge you, but to make sure that you don't get any help. And that's where we have the, the poor was creating almost this division of we get to decide who deserves and based on what we've decided, we will then either give or not. Now this all changes, okay? So we had years, hundreds of years where the poor was not just start in England, but they transfer over to America with the early colonists. So that is the way the American society is set up in the beginning where those who we believe need, we'll get. Those who we believe don't need, we will not just not give, we will persecute. I always wonder, if you don't want to give the homeless person a dollar, why do you have to spit at him? You've decided that he doesn't deserve to get, so why do you kick him on the side of the road? So what happened? I want to take you to 1929. Talk to me about what happens on October 29th, 1929 in the United States. The stock market crashes. So October 29th is known as Black Tuesday, Okay. Uh, one of the darkest days, not just in American history, but really in the world because it's a domino. So you have years and years of corruption, right? Something known as the Gilded Age. It looked beautiful, but the inside was trash. Things were crumbling. People were buying on credit. Comes October 29th, 1929, the stock market crashes. 
if you ever look at pictures of the day the stock market crashed, the only other image that I recall that looks similar to that is 9-11. And I'll explain to you what I mean. When I was very young, I was in eighth grade when 9-11 struck. And I remember watching the footage. So we didn't grow up with TV, but we went down the block to my old neighbor who was allowed to have a TV and we sat glued. And I remember looking at the buildings as they were crashing and seeing things that didn't quite look like debris. And then when you look at the footage again, it doesn't look like debris because it's not debris. It was human beings who felt that their, their end was near which they were correct and they were jumping out of the buildings. You look at images of 1929 stock market crash, you have people who had millions invested become penniless, not overnight, within hours. And you see people jumping, jumping out of the buildings on Wall Street, jumping out of What you have here is something fascinating. Within a day, suddenly the definition of poor changes completely. The judgment of, well, it's because of your bad choices that you're poor. It's because of your own lack of initiative. That's why you don't have money. It's because you don't take enough time to invest in yourself. Suddenly you have the rich becoming the poor and the conversation around poverty changes completely. The conversation, not just around poverty, but also government assistance. And I want you to look at the third source, uh, the bottom quote that's bolded. As one observer aptly remarked, trying to turn back this tide of distress through private philanthropic, philanthropic contributions is about as useless as trying to put out a fire hose with a garden hose, okay? The world is burning down. We have millions of people who are not just unemployed, but are poverty swept. They cannot pay their bills. They don't have where to live tomorrow. They don't have a roof over their head. For many, then the depression answered once and for all the vexing question of whether private or public agencies should be responsible for relief giving. Meaning whose responsibility is this? How many individual organizations can we set up to help a nationwide depression? Voluntary charities simply could not cope with the situation. Only public agencies could deal with the collapse of the economy, mass unemployment and widespread destitution. You have over here, literally the collapse of the economy and the entire social structure. And we know that in the United States, you have FDR, um, Roosevelt, who then brings in the 100 day deals where he starts enacting many government policies, in essence, starting what we know today in the United States as the welfare state. In England, uh, though the Elizabethan laws are the ones that start the welfare state, it's after World War II, where the government really shifts. And I want you to look at the cartoon that you have on the first page, um, which this was the plan that was put forth by, I believe he's Baron. Okay, I don't know the difference between Baron and Sir, but I, I believe he's Baron Beveridge. Uh, does that name ring a bell at all? Maybe, yeah. Okay, so we know that during World War II, uh, World, World War I and then World War II, subsequently, so you have World War I, 1914 to 1918, the Great Depression starting in the United States and then transferring all across Europe, where again, people are destitute. Uh, there's a famous picture of a, a woman in Germany who's going to buy a loaf of bread. And she has a barrel that is overflowing with francs because the inflation was so high that there was no use to the money. Europe falls into the depression, comes World War II, and the government really takes over a lot of not just economic, political, but social elements. And you have Beveridge at the end in, 19, in the 1940s, I believe 1945, proposing this plan to deal with what he dubbed the five giant evils. And if you look at the cartoon, you have what he calls the five areas 
that a government has to take care of every single citizen, specifically the vulnerable. So you have on the left, number one is idleness, which would translate to unemployment. Simply people do not have jobs. You have capable human beings who want to work, but they don't have where to work. You have the flip side, which is people who want to work, but they don't have the ability, whether it's because they lack education, they lack resources to get to and from work. The next one is you have want. So want is needs, right? Not, I want this, I want a new iPhone, I want a new computer. I want meaning I want to be able to give my child a piece of bread to eat. I want to be able to have a roof over my head. I want to be able to know that tomorrow I'm gonna be able to survive and the next day and the next day. And that's really dealing with poverty. The third one is disease. I don't think we need to explain what disease is. Um, kind of, we've been living a year and a half with a global pandemic, uh, but dealing with disease, things that are really out of our control, but directly impact a person's ability to live. Five is, uh, four is ignorance, uh, which is lack of education. Right? It's really easy for the person who is able to go to elementary, high school, pre-college, master's, PhD, continue moving, moving up the food chain, say, I wonder why people aren't educated. I can explain to you why some people aren't educated. When they can't figure out where they're gonna to sleep tomorrow or if they will be able to make ends meet and feed, feed themselves. So there's no real ability to then move up in the, in the realm of education. The problem we know is with education, poverty decreases, right? So it's, there, there are two sides of the coin that really need each other, but the lack of education. And the fourth one is squalor. Uh, what does squalor mean? So squalor means, yeah, go ahead, Margaret. Squalor is to live in abject dirt with no running water, rats running around. That is squalor, uncleanliness, which breeds disease. Uh, that, that's exactly the definition. Squalor is you have in the 1750s with the rise of industrialization, huge factories, people want to move to cities very quickly. You have the beautiful streets with manicured lawns and, you know, the beautiful flowers and their windows are perfectly clean, matching to their little furniture that they have in the front. And then move a few blocks later and you have what we know as slums where they're rat infested, disease infested, violence, right? And here we have, I know, for, for example, in New York, they used to have what's called the tenement houses. Uh, they still have in the Lower East Side a museum where you walk in. And, and you wonder how, how did this pass inspection? I mean, every third step is missing. There's no banister on the side. Forget about running water. We're talking about family that's averaging seven, eight kids living in a one or two bedroom apartment. Um, there are no bathrooms, despite bathrooms having been invented. Conditions that are really unlivable. And this beverage says if, if the government would take hold of these five pillars and make it their responsibility, society at large would be taken care of. So that's the perspective of what a wealthier state looks like. And it ebbs and flows, again, depending on the politics, depending on the government. Um, but I wanna to talk to you, what about, what's the Jewish philosophy on welfare? Is it every man on its own? Is it survival of the fittest? Is it fully the government's responsibility? Are we just really a bunch of socialists? Was Karl Marx right, right? How does that work? So I want to talk to you about Rabbi Chaim David Halevi's Teshuvah, but before we could talk about it, we have to learn some Tanakh. 
So if you look at page three with me, I have to tell you, before you learn anything, you have to learn Tanakh. So much of what the Jewish community today deals with is because of the absolute ignorance. And I believe it's willful ignorance. I believe it's malicious ignorance not to tap into our past. When you learn the words of the Navi, you very quickly realize that what everybody claims to be as the standard Orthodox Judaism that has been passed down from Moshe Rabbeinu, I don't know about you, but I haven't found it yet in the Navi. When you talk about David HaMelech going out to war, Shaul HaMelech and his, his ups and downs in life, the Navi Yishayahu screaming at the people, stopping so religious. Um, I believe it's a willful ignorance, but really for us to be able to understand the world from the context of Erech HaChamim, you have to learn Tanakh. So I want to talk to you a little bit about the Givonim. Uh, by show of hands, how many of you are familiar with the story, who the Givonim are, the story of the Givonim? Yes, okay, we have one. Okay, so the Jewish people, we're on page three, source one. The Jewish people come to the land of Israel, and Yoshua is tasked with kibush v'chilukaret, conquering and then splitting the land between the tribes. Now, Yoshua, before he comes into the land, sends three different messages to the seven nations. The first one, you're more than welcome to leave. Relocate, right? We're not coming to war. If you would like, we're coming to take over the country, but you're more than welcome to leave. The second one is, you don't want to leave, that's fine, but you will then have to become not naturalized citizens, but you will have to be under our jurisdiction. So you will have to pledge allegiance to us, you will have to pay taxes, tributes, and be a part of the functional society. You cannot be a nation in our nation. That doesn't work. The third option was war. So what happens is Yoshua comes, and here we have the, the Givoni. So I want to read, if you look at Pasuk Gimel, Gimel. And the residents of Givon, so they heard about already how Yoshua had conquered the city of Yericho and turned it into absolute rubble, and how they conquered the city of Ai. So they figured, hold on, we're next. So they come with trickery. So the Gibonim say, hold on, we're next. So they decided to trick Yoshua. They got themselves all dressed up into clothing that was dirty, rugged. They took their wine skins and made them look all messed up from a long journey. They brought their bread and they hardened it and made it all crumbly. And they come to Yoshua and they say, you know, we come from a very far off country, from a totally different land. And we've been traveling because we want to come and we want to seek refuge amongst you guys. And at first, Yoshua says, are you sure you're not residents from here? And they say, look, look, look at us. We're disheveled. We're, we're dirty. It's clear from just our presentation that we come from a very far place. So Yoshua says, look, if you're coming to seek asylum, come. And what he does is he makes a shivua. He makes a contract with them. He promises them. If you look down at Pasuk Tetzvav, he said, you know what? I will make peace with you because my obligation is to clean the land of the residents that are currently here. But if you're coming from somewhere else and you want to settle, no problem. So he, he, he makes a peace agreement with them. He promises to give them the ability to live there peacefully, to sustain them. And the Nesim also swear to keep them safe. A couple of days later, as they're traveling into Israel, they chance upon the cities of the Givonim, and they realize 
hold on, we've been tricked. The Givonim have their houses, they have their communities, the buildings, everything's set up. And Yoshua feels tricked. So he comes and look at Pasuk Yutet. We promised them, we've sworn to them. Because we've sworn to them that you can't, that we will not cause war, we will not kill them out, despite their trickery, we can't break our promise. I'm reading on the top left of page three. We promised them that we would sustain them. So truthfully, they should be killed. But because we've made a promise, even though the promise was made under false assumptions, we have to upkeep that. Hold that thought in mind for a little bit later. So the, the Nisim tell them, they should live. And they're going to be the woodchoppers of the Shoavim. There's nothing we could do. We signed a false contract, but we are unable to retract. And therefore, we will promise to protect the Givonim and not just protect them, but allow them to be the woodchoppers and the water carriers. Now, if you look at Pasuk Chav Gimer, you are cursed. Yosheh said, You are cursed. You tricked us. You've done something that was highly incorrect and abominable. He says, though you won't be able to join the Jewish people, uh, you will be allowed to be the woodchoppers, the water carriers, specifically for the house of Hashem. Look at Pasuk Chavav. And that's what he did to them. He saved them. And they were not killed. The Jewish people were extremely upset and they would have forged ahead and and gone to war had Yoshua not told him, look, you cannot break your promise, we can't kill them. And he gave them the job of being the woodchoppers and the water carriers. So here you have a fascinating story where a group of individuals, through trickery, through lies, people who we'd certainly say, you don't deserve anything, right? If anybody was undeserving, it's the people who lie. And yet Yoshua says, I'm going to honor our contract and we will make you the woodchoppers and the water carriers in our community. Now let's fast forward to another story. So we have Shaul HaMelech constantly on the chase of David. Why is Shaul chasing David HaMelech? What happens that Shaul wants to kill David? Elchanan has an answer for you. I think he's going to be the next king. You are absolutely correct. Elchanan, that was such a beautiful answer. You know that Elchanan, Avinam, and the girls, Shiran Hodaya, they learn Navi every single night. So they know this, right? So what happens? David Amelch is seeking refuge. He just got word from Yonatan, who was his best friend, telling him, you're correct. Your assumption that my father, Shaul HaMelech, wants to kill you is accurate. Run for your life and go hide. So he runs off to the city of Nov. What is unique about the city of Nov? Who lives in the city of Nov? The Kohanim. Very good. Nov is the city of the Kohanim, right? Nov ira Kohanim. Look at source two on page three. So David comes to the city of Nov. Melech HaKohen, Achimelech at that point is the coin. Again, there's no Bet HaMikdash at this point, but there is a house of Hashem. We know there was a Mishkan, correct? 
‫שואל אבי, ויחרד אחימלך לקראת דוד, ‫ויאמר לו, מדוע אתה לבדך ואיש אין איתך? ‫אני מבין. ‫אחימלך סיס דוד, ‫הוא אומר, ‫למה אתה פה לבד? And David doesn't divulge it because Shaul is going to kill me. David throughout the story has tremendous kavod, tremendous respect to the person who actually just wants to murder him. And he tells him, I'm here on a secret mission. Do you have any food, anything I could eat? And Achimelech says, no, I have nothing to eat except for the lechem ha-panim, which is reserved for the kohanim. David says, give them to me. He gives him five loaves of bread and then asks, David says, do you have any kind of weapon? And Achimelech says, yes, I actually have the sword of Goliath. Goliath, that you, David HaMelech, slayed. I have his sword. He pulls out his sword, he gives it to David, and he sends him on his way. The problem is there's always one bad apple. Look at Pasuk uh, Dalit. Uh, let's look at actually Pasuk Chet. Visham, and over there, in this whole exchange, in the city of the Kohanim, Achimelech is talking to David, giving him what he needs. In this whole story, Visham ish me'avdei Shaul, there's one person who's also a servant of Shaul HaMelech. Vayomo, ne'atzal et ne'adunai, u'shmo do'eg ha'domi, abir ha'roim asher l'shaul. So there's one man, his name is do'eg ha'domi. He is either the head of the herdsmen or he's the head of the people, because it doesn't say ro'et son, he says the head. And he sees, he sees this whole exchange. And what does he do? He goes back to Shaul. He says, hey, Shaul, do you know where David is? Shaul says, no, I'm actually searching for him. He says, well, let me tell you. I just came from the city of the Kohanim. I was learning their Torah with them. Guess who I saw? Not only did I see David HaMelech, but I also saw him buddy-buddy with Achimelech, the Kohen Gadol, and he was, the Kohen. he was giving him food. He was giving him weaponry. So Shaul calls Achimelech. He says, is it true? Is it true that you're harboring my enemy? Here is somebody, David Amelk, who's committing treason against me. He's trying to harm me. He's trying to take away the rightful kingship from my family. Now, we know, obviously, that perception is incorrect. David Amelk, at this point, was already crowned to be the next king. And that's what Achimelech responds. He says, but he's, what do you mean? This is David Abdi. This is David, your faithful servant. And Shaul says, you and your entire city of Kohanim deserve to be put to death. Because you're on the side of those who are committing treason. And he calls them and he has Doeg Hadomi kill out the entire city of Kohanim. Let's look at page four. If you look down at source three, Pasuk Yudzayim. So it's on the second column. So he tells his, Shaul tells the people who are around him, go, turn around and go kill the Kohanim. Because they're also on David's team. They have a hand in helping David escape me. They know he's running away from me. They know I'm chasing him and they didn't even bother. They didn't have the audacity to come and cheer with me. So he tells Doeg Adomi, go, turn around, go and kill the city. And they go and they massacre the entire city. Now, if you'll recall correctly, Yoshua had promised the Givonim that they would be the woodchoppers and the water carriers in Bet Adonai. What is Bet Adonai? Where would they be the woodchoppers and water carriers? Where is Bet Adonai? You know. The Givonim. 
the Givonim are promised, you will be the wood choppers, the water carriers for those who serve Hagadosh Baruch Hu, meaning they will be the ones serving the city of Kohanim. So now suddenly you have the entire city of Kohanim is massacred. What happens to the Givonim? If the entire city is massacred, what do they clearly not need from the Givonim? They don't have a job, so they don't have a job. Next time you're coming to give the class with me. Yeah. They don't have they don't have jobs. They are unemployed. Their entire operation has just been shut down completely. If there's no city of Kohanim, there's nobody to bring water to. There's nobody to bring wood chopping to, right? They, there's no need. And ultimately we have the Givonim are completely unemployed. Let's jump forward to Shmuel Bet. So Shaul Hamelach died. Yehonatan died. The war is over. The years and years of persecution are just about behind as far as Shaul. So David Hamelech's life is never is a never-ending persecution. So David Hamelech is experiencing three years of famine. And when he tries to figure out well, why, what are the Jewish people doing? The first year he says maybe it's because of Abu Dazara. So during Hakel, he, he he gives the community rebuke and they say, We're not of the Abu Dazara. It's not idol worship. The next year says, maybe it's Gilu Arayot. Maybe it's because of sexual immorality. No, maybe it's Shvichat Damim. And that's when he says, oh, you want to talk about Shvichat Damim? You want to talk about murder? Why is the community, why is the Jewish community suffering from hunger? So let's look at source four, Pasuk Aleph. So this is Shmuel Bet. David. And there was a hunger, a famine in the days of David. Shanim Shana. Three years. Right, three years consecutively. And he asked, right? And Hashem says to him, Do you want to know why you brought famine to the land? Do you want to know why people are starving to death? The reason you're suffering from hunger is because of the actions of Shaul and his family and the murderous acts that they've committed towards the Givonim. So what happens? David calls the Givonim and he says, we're suffering. We're suffering because of you and because of the actions we've done towards you. What can we do to appease you? And you should know the Givonim and their cruelty. What do they ask for? What is their appeasement? What do they want? They want um, the sons of the king. They say, you kill, what are we going to get? Gold, silver? Shaul Amel didn't rob us. He didn't come take our gold and silver, but he massacred us. Give us some of his people. Yeah. Very different Middle Eastern mentality of dealing with problems. Uh, different conversation for a different time of when you live in the Middle East and you try to act like European colonists, how that, how that works out. But I once watched a fascinating documentary on what a salcha is, where when two tribes in the Middle East fight and one of them massacres, so part of Part of bringing peace is the other tribe has to bring members of their tribe and let the let the tribe that was hurt massacre them. And only once blood is shed, that's when peace comes again. You have over here, the Givonim say, give us seven of yours. Give us seven of Shaul's children, of seven of Shaul's ancestry. We will murder them. Hang them up for everybody to see, and that will appease us. So if you look at Pasuk Dalit, the Givonim say, we, gold and silver, that's not what he took from us. What, what should we do? So they say to David, 
האיש אשר קילנו, the person who's decimated us, ואשר דימה לנו, נשמדנו מתייצב בכל גבול ישראל. Give us his children and we will kill him. What does David Amalek do? He does. He chooses seven of the children, uh, spearing Mephibosheth, the son of Yehonatan, and they hang them. They give on him masks, they kill them, and they hang them up in the city, and they leave them there, the bodies, um, to just hang for everybody to see. Don't mess with us. Vayitnem, if you look at the page five, Pasuk Tet, Vayitnem biyad agivonim, he gives over the seven uh, ancestors, uh, the seven descendants of Shaul, Vayitnem biyad agivonim, Vayokium, Bahar l'pnei Adonai, Vayiplu shevatam, Yachad, Vehemah umotu bimei katsir v'shonim, Betchilat katsir tzorim. And it's during the harvest season where everybody's out and everybody sees, and they ultimately murder the seven members of Shaul's family, and that is when the famine stops. And this is the historical background for the conversation we now need to have about welfare, about caring for the vulnerable, about caring not just for the vulnerable, but the problematic individuals in society, for the people who have not just wronged us, but we really deemed not undeserving, unwanted, hated. What do we do with them? I want to walk you through a teshuvah of Rabbi Chaim David HaLevi. By show of hands, how many of you are familiar with the writings of Rabbi Chaim David HaLevi? By the time we're done, um, my hope is that you will fall in love with him like I have. Uh, there's a book written by Rabbi, Rabbi Dr. Mark Angel and his son, Rabbi Chaim Angel, which is titled Rabbi Chaim David HaLevi, Gentle Scholar and Courageous Thinker. And... I'm going to show you a picture if you can see. I don't know if you can see, but that is the picture of Chacham David Halevi where he's a gentle scholar, but he's a courageous thinker. I want to share with you just a little bit of who he was. Uh, I believe Rebchaim David Halevi was a, a, a Yerushalmi who grew up in the, city, in the neighborhood, which today is Nachot, but the Oel Moshe neighborhood in the Toronto Shul. Uh, the Toronto Beth Knesset was actually don- donated by Sir Moses Montefiore, uh, as was much of Yerushalayim and Israel, yet somehow the narrative of the Sephardim uh, never built the state of Israel is one that is uh, with much fascination, right? So you have here Chacham David HaLevi, they say when he was very, very young, he used to love to sit around in the Bet Knesset with the elder the elder Chachamim and learn, and he loved to learn Zohar with his father. Harab Ben Sion, and I don't know how to pronounce it, I think it's Swenka, was Abedin, and he saw Chacham David HaLevi's diligence and intelligence, and he told his parents, listen, the other kids you want to send to the, the, the French schools that are teaching all different stuff, that's fine. This one you have to send to Parat Yosef. You have to send him somewhere that he's going to grow into a Torah scholar. And the parents do. His parents, um, Mr. I believe, Moshe and Victoria Levy, send him to Parat Yosef. And we're talking about a class, I mean, this is like the dream team class. Look, Chacham Ovadia Yosef, Rabbi Mordechai Eliyahu, Rav Shlush. It's an unbelievably powerful class. He learns under the tutelage of, um, I believe, Chacham Ezra Atiyah, but is more closely connected to Harav Uziel. Rav Uziel's philosophy, lifestyle. Ultimately, Harav Uziel brings him on as his, as his personal secretary uh, during the years that Chacham Uziel is the Rishon Etzion. Uh, for a short while, he also taught in Chacham Uziel's uh, school that was run by the Tzitz Eliezer, Eliezer Waldenberg. And 
the common theme is you find that Rabbi Chaim David Halevi is not a fighter. He loves the people. He wants to make change for the people. He was extremely active in making sure in the 1950s. Um, sorry. So there was a Rishon Metzion in Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years before the state of Israel. Once the state of Israel is founded, somehow the tide shifts and the Sephardic rabbis were no longer capable of take, and I say it with sarcasm, capable of taking on the tasks that they've been doing for hundreds of years before very, very well. And in the 1950s, you have a situation where all positions that were funded by the government were strictly reserved for Ashkenazi leaders to the extent that Sephardic rabbis were not even allowed to sign documents without having to send the paperwork and say, it doesn't matter that I'm the Chacham Bashi, I need you, the secretary, to please sign it for me. Chacham David Halavi was instrumental in helping that shift. So though he wasn't a fighter, when he felt that there was injustice being done, he wasn't afraid to fight. He wasn't afraid to raise his voice. And ultimately, I believe uh, that lost him his, his bid to being chief rabbi of the state of Israel. He was the Rishon Metzion of Tel Aviv, where the people loved him. He would go to the Sephardi, the Ashkenazi, the Yemenite, the Turkish. He would go everywhere, every bit Knesset. He would speak. The people loved him. And normally the next step from being the Rishon Metzion in Tel Aviv was being the Rishon Metzion, the chief rabbi of Israel. The problem was when they wanted to nominate him, um, he was part of the Mabdal party, right, the Mizrahi movement. And at this point, Chacham Ovadio said, said, hey, we need you on our team. Join Shas. If you join Shas, we're going to put you on the top. And for his reasons, Kacham David Alevi said, I don't buy into it. I don't buy into the platform. I have my issues with what it stands for, what it is. I'm running on my ticket. And ultimately, he obviously lost. And it's tragic. It's very tragic when politics and affiliation versus character and assessment of are these people capable for the job? Are they good for the job? Um, aren't taken into consideration. Ultimately, he does end up writing tremendous amounts of books, uh, one of them being the Asel Set, which is what we're going to be doing today, um, with many, many more. He ends up getting the multiple prizes, Pras Yisrael, Pras Kuk. He ends up getting from Barilan an honorary PhD, so he gets the title of doctor. And you find here somebody who is so bright, so deep, and yet so in touch with the basic needs that society has. And I believe you'll see that in his teshuvah, the, the delicacy, the ability to understand the poor, the vulnerable, the downtrodden, the people who don't have a voice. Usually when people climb to the top, it's not just a neglect of those on the bottom, but it's on the backs of those who are on the bottom. And you have here a leader who understands the sensitivities needed. I want to look at the teshuvah with you. If you look at page... Six. So Chaim David Halevi is posed with a question on the parts of Navi we just talked about regarding the Givonim. So here's somebody who writes a letter to him and he is giving a response and I want to take the response apart with you. Uh, don't get scared by the Hebrew. I will read and translate whatever needs to be and the rest we'll use Google Translate for. Um, if you look at, again, page six, source one. So he gets a letter in 1984, and in this letter, the person writes to him about the story of the Givonim and the cruelty of having given over the seven descendants of Shaul. And here's his questions. 
הנה מאשר, I'm reading on the top, הנה מאשר קיבל קבלת מכתבך, right? I've received your letter ביום ד' תמוז, תשמ"ה, 1984, בתמיעותך, with your wonderment, בקשר לדברי רבותינו ז"ל, ביבמות. And he said, you've been wondering about the words of our rabbis in Yivamot, Mesechet Yivamot, Ayin Hei. Al ha-mesupal b'naviya, regarding the story in the Navi, where it says, Vayhi rav b'yimei David, and there was a famine in the days of David, Shalosh shanim, shana achar shana, v'yabakesh David et p'nei Adonai. There were three years of famine. David asks why, and the response is because of the actions that Shaul took against the Gibonim, and he massacred them. V'darshu rabotenu sham, and our rabbis over there, are particular to point out, look at the bolded. El bet ha-damim al asher himit et ha-givonim. Why is there famine? Because of the actions that Shaul took against the givonim by massacring them. V'yechan natsinu b'shaul shehimit ha-givonim. Hold on. Where do we see that Shaul massacred the givonim? Ela, rather, achachamim teras, mitoch shaharag nov ir ha-koanim, because he killed the city of the koanim, and they were the, the Gibonim sustained them through giving them food and water, and therefore now they didn't have food and water. We don't actually see a massacre of the Gibonim, but by default, killing out the city of Nov Ir Hakoanim ultimately leads to the demise of the Gibonim. Right, even more over there it says, by request of the Givonim, seven of Shaul's descendants were given them, to them, whom two, and they were killed, they were given to them, they were hung, and that's how the Givonim were appeased. And about this our rabbis ask, doesn't it say that parents shouldn't die because of the sins of their, their children, and children shouldn't be a responsibility for the actions of their parents? Look at the bold. And if you look at source two, it's an exact quote from the Talmud Bavli. Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan responds, It's better that one word, one verse from the Torah should be destroyed. But there should not be a desecration of the name of Hashem in public. Right? Your question of, well, why are the children paying? Doesn't the Torah say the children shouldn't pay for the actions of their father? Rabbi Yochanan says, you know what? Let's erase that verse so that there shouldn't be a chilul Hashem. If that doesn't bother you, it should. Why? Rashi adds over here, what's going to happen? The nations of the world are going to look at the Jewish people and say, you want to know how they treat their converts? You want to know how they treat the people who are not one of them? Just look. You want to see how they treat the people who aren't allowed to be citizens in their country? You want to see who they, they how they treat the people who are not part of their insular circle? Look at the Givonim. They had no problem not just letting Shaul dispose of them, but then doing nothing to make sure that they were compensated. Rabbi Yochanan says, it's better the verse should be taken out of they shouldn't pay for the actions of their parents, and they should. So there shouldn't be a chilul Hashem. He says, Vitamata, and now you have four questions. Look at paragraph two. V'tamata v'chizut alta shel Torah shebekol derachenu masenu yu apitzav shemayomuru hagoyim. So your question, your first question is, I don't understand. What is this idea of? Well, what are the non-Jews going to say? Is everything that I do, do I have to think? Well, what are the neighbors going to say? Right. 
That's a ridiculous way to live. Why do I, if my actions are correct, they're correct. If they're incorrect, they're incorrect. What is this? Well, what are the non-Jews going to say? So that's question number one. Question two is, Hasvara, the bolded, the logic of the goyim doesn't make sense. They're going to say, oh, hold on. Shaul killed, this was an internal affair. Shaul killed the Kohanim. The Kohanim died, so the Givonim don't have jobs. So the Givonim died, so it means Shaul killed them. Come on, that's really convoluted. It's connecting A plus B plus apples. Third, we don't see that there's any justice or any complaint even on how did you kill the whole city of Kohanim? Where, where's the appeasement to that, for that? Where's the retaliation on that? And we're only worried about the Givonim. Why are we not having a conversation about no the city of Kohanim? And the fourth question is, and in general, where do we find anywhere written that they were contracted to never lose their jobs? They were not tenured into being wood choppers and water carriers. We don't find that when Yoshua says, I promise you that we're going we're gonna to sustain you, it means forever. I will forever make sure you have a job, no matter how many times you lose it, keep coming back to the welfare office, file unemployment, file disability. We're gonna, who said? I mean, how many times can you be a repeated offender? Who said that this was an eternal contract of making sure that they get taken care of? So these, those are the four questions posed. I want to read to you. Uh, if you look at the bottom of page six, still on the right column. So after uh, the bold, it was clown. Right. We don't find anywhere that they've been promised not to be uh, let go. No one promised that, you know, your job folds, company's over, sorry. After the He says, you've also added in your letter to me, I understand you have tremendous pain from this story and you've added some words and he's critiquing them in the most gentle fashion. He said, v'shachachta. you've added some really harsh words against the Chachamim. You momentarily forgot that the words that you're trying to figure out the understanding, the meaning, these are words of our Chachamim. It's not just you read a poem somewhere and it didn't make sense. You had an article you didn't like. These are the words of the Chachamim. The words are like burning coals. And the Rambam says, if you look down at source five, what does the Rambam say? So in his Hakdama the Rambam, in his um, No Nonsense, talks about three categories of people who approach learning Agadah. The first two categories he speaks very disparagingly of. One category is a category of idiots who believe everything. One category is idiots who don't believe anything. And then he has a third category. And he says, I can't call the third category category because there are so few people in there. It's like me telling you the sun is a category or the moon is a category. It's not a category. There's just one of it. So he talks about this third section. Look at source five. If you're from this third group, when you read the words of the Chachamim, and you bump into something that in your mind makes no sense. It just doesn't fit. Tamod. Okay, stop a minute. Now notice he doesn't say and just accept and believe because I'm unas chachamim. He says stop and think about it. Contemplate. 
It's a riddle. It's an allegory. There's something hidden here in the text that needs to be extracted. Let it, let it overwhelm you, this feeling of, I don't, I don't understand, right? It's sitting on me. It's weighing on my heart. I'm, I'm deeply involved in thinking about what is this riddle. Try to find the logical explanation. And something that, that is true, it's just, it's not, it's not something that makes no sense. Like it says, and he says, you want to know how to learn when you bump into something that doesn't make sense, don't just accept it. That's stupid. But you don't either need to reject it. Sit with it. Sit with it and try to understand. Try to read the depth into it. Approach it from a place of, of weighing it. Of COVID Rosh, if there's something that doesn't make sense, look for the logic, look for the understanding, and keep probing until you find it. And that is Chaim David Alevi's summary of his letter. He says, But now I want to respond to you. And if you look at back, okay, so we're on page six, back up to Rabbi Chaim David Alevi, it's right on top of source two. He says, The way you generally want to approach anything difficult from Kachamim is stop, think about it, take the time to invest and research it. He said, but happens to be this topic, this one that you're talking about, the city of Ir Nova Kohanim, it happens to be very, very clear. There's nothing, there's nothing hidden over here. He said, this happens not to be one of those places where the understanding is very, very convoluted. Let me help you understand how simple and straight and honest and just the story is. And I want to walk you through his tishuva. Uh, look at page seven. Look at source uh, six. Rav Chaim David Alevi divides his answer into two parts. So we're going to do part one, part two, and hopefully the sikum. Chovat memshal parnasat ezrachav. He talks about the moral, ethical, practical obligation of a government to take care of the welfare of its citizens, to care for those who have less, to care for those who can't, deserving, undeserving, Everybody, let's look at this. I'm reading from uh, the top of page seven. Kimamal, okay. Kimamal musagal nakdim. So he says the first thing, as an aside, to answer your question of Shaul only killed the city of Novir at Kohanim. Why are the Givonim so angry? Says if you read the Pshat, and I highly recommend you do that. Haraperet, our rabbi, always tells us the truth lies in the truth of the sentence. What it says, that's what it meant, right? If you look into the Navi, Shaul actually did go ahead and massacre the Gironim. If you look into the notes of Rebi Sadia Gaon on this conversation, he says very simply, Shaul killed Gironim. There's nothing, there's no, the, the Novir Akwanim were decimated, they lost their jobs, and that's why the Gironim were angry. Simply, Shaul killed Gironim, and that's why they're angry. He said, okay, but let's put that answer aside. Kamu, if you look at paragraph two, Ledivrei Rabotenu Bevavli Yivamot. Does you want to understand the story? Look at the bold. Shebarigat Kohane Adonai Benov. 
when Shaul went ahead and killed the, the Kohanim of the city of Nob, they lost the source of livelihood. By killing the city of Kohanim, the Givonim are now all unemployed. They're not naturalized citizens. They don't have the opportunities that others have. For example, they couldn't own pieces of land. They were strictly at the mercy of the Jewish people. And by killing the city of Kohanim, they were stripped of any ability to live in the land of Israel. They're not full-fledged citizens. They don't have the rights and protection of full-fledged citizens. And therefore, left without unemployment, they're really left to die. They had no ability to work the land. Their entire ability to sustain themselves, it wasn't, oh, so now I lost my job and I can't go to Hawaii during midwinter break. It's, I don't have a job, so tomorrow I don't have what to eat, so the next day they drop dead. Look at uh, paragraph two. And that's when we say, Yoshua, you promised to sustain them. Look at the bold. The bold. Every single nation, anybody who is part of the government, anybody who has jurisdiction over other people, to be concerned, to worry, to take care. You see the word kol? Every single citizen, whether they're an immigrant, whether they're there legally, illegally, they find themselves in your property, they find themselves under your jurisdiction, they follow your laws. So then you, the government, have a responsibility towards them to make sure that they have the ability to sustain themselves. Ben Shem Toshvim, Ben Shem Gerim, whether they're citizens, whether they're foreigners, the Koshiken, and even more so, they were promised, Givonim, you will be protected. You are protected members of our society. We will care for you. So what was his obligation? It was his obligation to care. You killed the city of Ir Nova Kohanim. That's your account. It's an internal affair. Fine. But what are you going to do now about all the mass unemployment? Who's going to take care of that? It's okay for you to shut down one operation, but what are you now going to do with all those because of your decisions that are out of jobs? Because of you have no housing, because of you have no ability to sustain themselves. If Chaim David Halevi says, I don't know. I don't know if in early governments, this is what they used to do. I'm not sure, right? I haven't done enough research on early governments, but I could tell you I'm on the second to last paragraph from the bottom of the page on the right side. He says, Said, I can't tell you about earlier governments that were, you know, at the same time period that we're talking about in Navi, but I can tell you that they were promised to be protected and they weren't. And then he goes on to a little bit of a tangent that I will actually speak about in my next class, but I'm still going to cover it because it's so important. He says, Zot ba'od, this and more. The Jewish nation, part of our DNA is we are Rahmanim. Every single Jewish community across the board will take care of their poor. And if you can look at sources 8, 9, and 10, you will see the practical halachot of the Rambam. 
uh, as well as Maran, uh, uh, Maran uh, Rav Cairo and Rama regarding the halachot of tzedakah. He says there's no city, there's no Jewish community. And if you look at the um, bottom of page seven, because of Yaduam Fosam, it's known, meaning this is recorded, this is known, this is obvious. This is one of the obligations of the Torah. That we have a primary obligation to look out for the needs of those who have those who need. Today already, we live in a world where thankfully in most first world countries, that is an obvious fact that those who are in need must be absorbed into those who have and have to be the responsibility of not just the government, the individuals, the communities. Minimally. He says, and today, we live in a world where at least the people who are not employed, for whatever reason, whether it's because of disability, inability to find work, they have some kind of fund that they could tap into so that they don't, they don't go broke and starve to death. Now look at the last, he says, and with this, is that the fact that Shaul killed the city of Kohanim and neglected to take care of the after effects, neglected to take care of the huge now population of unemployed, ultimately they die. They die of hunger. And the Givonim, they know, dying of, you know, it says, it's better to die war, so it's a quick, you know, one and done and it's over. Over here, they're having this painful death of every single day, starving to death. And that sin of Shaul HaMelech not being able to provide an alternative source of employment, that's the first huge error that Shaul HaMelech makes towards the Gironim, whether he massacres them proper or whether it's an indirect. Let's look at page eight. I want to teach you something else. Not just Shaul's inability to to take care of the unintended consequences, right? It's like dominoes. You push one on this side, but the 10th one is going to fall on the other side. His obligation was, you're going to take care of internal affairs with no fear so then make sure that the consequences of all those around are properly taken care of. He says, but let's add to that. Look at source 11. I'm reading from the top. I want another lesson to learn. Right? Ultimately, they're left just to die. It's not, oh, like, you know, I have the milk that's expired, so maybe I could use my... It's people are starving to death. It's, are we going to make it to tomorrow? Are we not going to make it to tomorrow? And I think sometimes that's a hard concept to wrap your head around when, you know, you go into a coffee shop, at least in the United States, there are 50 different choices. You can't just say, hey, I want a cup of coffee. It's, do you want it with cream, without cream, with the sugar? We live in a world of a tremendous amount of abundance that it's sometimes difficult to wrap our head around that literally just over a couple of borders, there are people who are starving to death. I know that where we live, 30 minutes down, you're, you're, you are in a different country, but you're also in a different world. There are people who are at three and four and five sitting on the streets with dirty faces, begging for food, that we don't live in a world where poverty is gone. To the contrary, um, I once read a fascinating article where they pay farmers in the United States to destroy crops 
thousands and thousands of pounds of crops because they have to keep the economic level in balance. And you wonder to yourself, there are people who are starving to death. Is there no way for us to take the resources and somehow get it over it instead of just telling, you have a farm full of potatoes, just burn them all down. These are contemporary issues that are not gone. The second problem. Right, so they're being left to a famine. Okay, so we know that Shaul Hamel, as the king, as the head of the government, he utterly neglected his responsibility. What about the people, though? So here, the entire Jewish nation knows what happened to the city of Kohanim. They now can see the plight of the Givonim. They see them dying every day, dropping like flies. And what is the response from the bystanders? Yeah, the same as yours. Nothing. Silence. There is no response. You understand? There are people who are dropping like flies, dying in front of your house, and you do nothing. You continue going to work. Let's look at what happens. There's a famous case um, known as the Kitty Genovese case. Are any of you familiar with Kitty Genovese? Hmm? Okay, I think because Oad's from New York, you may know a little bit more on this case. Um, who is Kitty Genovese, Oad? I think she was a lady that got murdered, but no one stopped. There was by, uh, people standing by and no one uh, stopped them. Kitty Genovese was a 28-year-old in 1964, lived in Kew Gardens, which is a, in Queens, New York. She was a bartender coming home at two o'clock in the morning. All alone, gets out of her car, parks the car, is walking to her apartment building. Somebody comes from behind and brutally attacks her. And she starts screaming. So he runs away. He comes back about 10, 15 minutes later and rapes her and then murders her. The next morning, the cops come and find her dead, bleeding out. And they start asking the neighbors. And one neighbor says, oh yeah, actually I did hear. I heard somebody scream. Somebody says, I, I thought of calling the police. I wanted to call the police. The New York Times eventually wrote, there were 38 people who heard her and didn't respond. They later on retracted and said it wasn't 38, but it, a significant number of people when interviewed said, of course, we heard somebody screaming, but we assumed somebody else was going to take care of it. Because if we heard it on the third floor, probably somebody on the floor, first floor was going to call the police. And ultimately she dies because nobody cared enough to pick up the phone. I'm not saying go out and uh, confront the attacker, to simply pick up the phone and call 911, call the police station. You have, unfortunately, a similar story, um, much more gruesome, that happens in England in 1993. Tell me about James Bulger or Bulger. Anybody familiar with that case? Yes, okay. of course. He, yeah, he, was, he was killed by his um, classmates. No, he, he was a little boy, but he was tortured. Uh, he, he, I just can't remember if it was classmates or grown, grown men. I think it was grown men. So you're correct two about him being... Children. It was two 10-year-olds. Yeah. So this was one of the most horrific cases. I don't recommend you read it before going to bed like I did because it will give you nightmares. Um, 
James was a two-year-old who had been going shopping with his mom. She was at a butcher shop and let go of his hand momentarily because she went to get something. She was paying. Two 10-year-olds dragged him away. And I cannot give you the details of the murder because they are so gruesome. Murdered him, mutilated his body um, in broad daylight. And when they got the footage and started interviewing people, he was like, yeah, of course, we actually passed on the street. We saw the two-year-old crying. We saw, we saw the two 10-year-olds going to the train tracks. We saw them pulling out paint. We saw things, and we said nothing. And then a two-year-old who was in an open marketplace where there are hundreds of people who saw him, who witnessed something, and what did they do? They did nothing. nothing. Can I ask you a question, please? Can I yeah, ask you a of course. So all these instances of um, of Gentiles in other lands who are poverty-stricken, of this woman who was killed, of this little boy who was killed, are you suggesting that it's our Jewish duty to take care of the Gentile? That's a really good question. Um, it's not me just suggesting, but our Torah actually obligates us to take care of all yes. human beings. Yes, absolutely. 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 I don't believe... I believe it was Chacham Muziel, um, if I'm not mistaken, who said before, when he talks about the, he's talking to the Arabs and the Jews on a Shabbat, where they come out in conflict. They're, you know, the Arabs are throwing stones and he calls them to the battlefield. He says, come, come. But before you're going to be Arabs and before you're going to be Jews, we're all going to be the sons of Bnei Avraham Avinu. Let it be Shabbat. Let's settle things civilly. And you see this specifically in the Chachmei Svarat, okay? This understanding that the word goyim, which literally means nations. Right. Um, Non-Jews are an essential part of the world, as are Jews. And the relationship and the need for us to care for them uh, is very clear, at least from Chachmei Svarat. So, yes. Now, let, let, let me hold for a second. I want to share one more case, which is um, in 2017 in Florida, there were three te- teenagers who were at some kind of a reservoir, and they witnessed a... Uh, somebody who was somewhat disabled, so I don't know if it was intellectually disabled, physically disabled, uh, walk into this reservoir and start drowning. So you see, in these two cases, cell phones weren't around yet. We didn't have smartphones, right? Um, what these teenagers do is they see him drowning and he starts screaming to them, help me. I cannot swim. What do these kids do? They're not kids, they're 16, 17-year-olds. What do they do? They start taking out their smartphone and filming him. It used to be you had to find criminals. Today, the criminals are stupid enough. They just take videos of themselves and put them on social media, right? So you just, you, you know where to find them. So they start videoing themselves, mocking him, taunting him, and he's begging them for help. One of them even says, hey, bro, do you, do you have the guts to see somebody die? And he just dies. And you look at this where, okay, so the person committing the atrocity is one thing. What about the obligation of all the people around? And I want to look at source... Here, look at uh, page eight. Still the top, the um, second bolded. It's important for us to highlight. Right? Meaning the justification of why three years of famine? Because you caused the, the givonim to die through famine. So the Jewish people, you'll experience a little bit of what it feels like to be sitting with your mouth parched with your strummy growling because you have no idea where the next day's food is going to come from. 
Now look at the last paragraph on this page. Now we know ultimately the Givonim proved themselves to be equally unworthy. Meaning when David Amalekhan says, I want to appease you. What is the appeasement the Givonim are looking for? They're not looking for appeasement. They're looking for revenge, right? And their revenge, the cruelty of them taking the children, hanging them, sort of, it seals the deal. And David Amel, Moshe had already said they won't be able to join the people. David Amel says, no, you, you're not joining Am Yisrael. Um, if you look at this sugya here, I'm reading on page eight, the second paragraph. Meaning this, this heinous act of killing the seven children in retaliation. By request of the Givonim, as gruesome as it was, the, the Chilul Hashem, the desecration of the name of Hashem, was turned. And this turned into a moment. Why, why of a Kiddush Hashem? Look at, it says, Bisugyal, look at 13. It's better that we should erase one verse, one word from the Torah. So that the name of Hashem should be glorified in public. And Margaret, this is going back to exactly what you talked about. So that the passerbyers who saw these bodies would say, what, what happened here? Why are these seven people hanging out here? And what did they say? You know who these people are? They're from the aristocracy of the Jewish people. What did they do to deserve to be hung? Oh, you know, you want to know what they did? Oh, they hurt the converts. They hurt the foreigners. You want to know a system that's not corrupt? Even the king's sons, when they will be corrupt, when they will be hurtful, when they will not take care of the vulnerable, they will be meted out punishment. Just because you're up here doesn't mean you can neglect what's down here. When the people saw this, they said, wow, there is no nation like the Jewish people who are willing to take their own people and put them on, on, on the pulpit to say, hey, you did something wrong. You did something wrong. It's true he's a foreigner. It's true they're an immigrant. It's true that this is somebody who's not even part of our society, but you wronged them. And if you wronged them, you're not getting a free pass. It's not a system of protecting. If you're one of us, so eh, you can do whatever you want. But if you're not one of us, we can hurt you as much as possible. And when the, the, the nations of the world saw that, they said, could you imagine if they treat the foreigner with so much respect? Imagine what it's like to join the Jewish people because they care about theirs. They care about the vulnerable. They're not corrupt, right? They don't hurt other individuals. They make sure the poor, the needy, their voices aren't silenced. They make sure people don't feel rejected from their society because of the color of their skin. They don't reject people because they only eat certain kinds of foods and other people don't. They don't reject people because of the way they dress or the things that they speak about or the interests they have. That's the kind of Jewish people David HaMelech is steering to. A society of justice. A society that doesn't throw people under the bus because they can't all in the name of religion. Because if I wear a certain kind of clothes and I look a certain way and I act a certain way, so then I could disparage you because you're less. You're less deserving of having a voice in my court. You're less deserving of having equal opportunities I have because you chose to be different. You're part of the undeserving people. 
you're part of the society, the society that I have no obligation to care for because you're not one of us. If you would look like us and act like us and talk like us and think like us and subscribe to my philosophy, maybe I'll take care of you. But if you step out of line, why in the world would I care about you? Why in the world? Because three years of famine, of Jewish deaths, was not enough to repay for the sin against the Givonim, whether directly or indirectly killed them. I want to look if we have. Do we have five more minutes? Um, Ohad, where are you? Yep, yeah, okay. If we look at uh, page nine, Rabbi Chaim David Alevi sums up the tshuva. He says, and look at uh, source 14 on the top. He says, and this is a little bit of a tangent. He says, I want to help you understand why there's no retaliation for Shaul killing the city of Nov Irakani. He says, Shavon Hari, look at the boldness. Shavon Hari got no, because the killing of the city of the Nov, Nimchalo Bize, Shinitvayesh Bimase Averazza Ze. He says, Shaul Hamelech has tremendous amount of shame for killing out the city of Nov. And he explains how we know that when Shaul Hamel goes to the sorcerer, uh, sorcerer to bring up uh, Shmuel Hanavi, and he doesn't tell him anything about the story. He's, we see extreme regret and shame. He said, don't es- underestimate the power of not just Teshuvah, but living with this tremendous shame. And he brings some sources from the Gemara, which talk about how shame, right? It's literally like murder. When people feel that, that intrinsic, I don't deserve to exist. I am no longer part of the human club. That shame, he said, don't underestimate it. And that Teshuvah of Shaul was enough. Now, not only that, he says, look at the next vote. This, this degradation, the shame, is something very common. It's tantamount to murder. And if you look at it again, Source 16, you'll see it actually in the words of the Gemara. It says, I want to add to that in addition. If you look at it from Shaul's perspective, Shaul is going through a tremendously difficult emotional turmoil. If you look at Source 18, you'll see all the, the, the love, the hate, the fear, the paranoia towards David HaMelech. I got in trouble for using the word paranoia in one of my other classes. They said, how could you talk about Shaul HaMelech like that? I don't know, last I checked, Hashem did not give us all these books to put on shelves in museums with curators um, to make sure that once a year we open it and we say, Bezot Torah. I believe the Torah is a Torah Chaim and we're meant to learn with the greatest, with the greatest kavod, with the greatest respect. The Navi tells us Shaul HaMelech is going through a tremendously difficult emotional time with his highs and his lows. And he sees David HaMelech, not just, uh, he sees him as a moret, he sees him as ultimately somebody committing treason. And the city, by default, of Kohanim who house them are now treasonous. And his errant, obviously, it's wrong, but in his judgment, we know that the punishment for treason is, according to Jewish law, what is the punishment for treason? Treason. Capital, uh, capital punishment. Yeah, capital, there you go, capital punishment. So in his perspective, he did nothing wrong by killing the city of Kohanim because they are siding with the treasonous traitor. And therefore, they, according to the law, deserve to be killed out. Look at the um, last paragraph before number 15. So actually, two paragraphs over 15. He said he was going through a really difficult patch. Look at the second bold. 
he was forgiven for this sin. Aval Avon Hagivonim. But we understand why you killed the city of Novi In his perspective, it was justified according to the judgment of the law. But the Givonim, what in the world did the Givonim deserve to be decimated? What in the world did the Givonim do to deserve to be neglected so that they should die of famine? I want to sum it up to you. Now you're looking here at the Teshuvah, where Chacham David Halevi is talking about an underprivileged group, a group that only made problems for the Jewish people. The Givonim from the onset, they join us with trickery. They join us in a way that is totally underhanded through lies. And yet our obligation to them, once they are part of our nation, is like any other citizen in the world. How could it be that there's a government that doesn't care for the people's basic needs? How could it be that you could go to sleep at night knowing that there are people in the street who tomorrow morning will be dead because nobody cared about them? Last week, I read a story. There was a 56-year-old who was sleeping in a dumpster here in the United States. Why was he sleeping in a dumpster? Because he's lazy, because he's bad, because he's made poor choices. No, I don't know what his life story is. All I could tell you is the next morning when the garbage truck came to pick up the dumpster, they didn't realize there was somebody in there and they crushed him to death. I'm not blaming the truck driver, you understand? The truck driver was doing his job. My question is, what about our job? What about us? What is our obligation when we look at society? What is our obligation when we build a society? And I have to say, I'm looking at a teshuvah where he says, we have answers. We have answers to societal problems. You know why we have answers? Because this, and I, I speak nicely. The Sephardic Chachamim and the Sephardic Jews in general have always maintained autonomous societies. So it didn't matter where we traveled, we always ran our own society. And therefore the social problems that came up have already been dealt with, right? This tissue, I read it, I was like, wow, it's so revolutionary. And then I went, I read the Abar Benel, right? Don Yitzhak Abar Benel from Spain. And he said the exact same thing. I said, wow, that's so revolutionary. And then you realize that our Chachamim have never stopped dealing with social issues because as a Jewish people, as a, an autonomous Jewish people, that is our obligation. You have to obviously ask yourself the question, why when 1948 we come to build a Jewish state, we somehow willfully bury all the rabbis who've had answers up until now that have worked and kind of like blind men are groping in the dark trying to reinvent a wheel that has already been invented. The tissue vote of, well, how do we deal with the poor? How do we deal with people who don't want to be employed? How do we deal with uh, women who can't get their get? How do we deal with all these issues? How do we deal with the, the oppressed? How do we deal with people who don't feel like they have a place in our society? These are issues that are not new. The context will always change, right? It's always going to be something different. The story is always different. The storyline of we are here as people. And I believe that before we are Jews, we are human beings all playing a different role. And our Chachamim have dealt with these issues. And now really it's up to us. It's up to us to say, you know what? Whether I'm in the leadership and therefore I have an obligation to take care of the vulnerable or whether I'm an individual and I'm a bystander, either way I'm obligated because there's nobody that can go to bed at night without thinking, well, I have a safe space. 
but what about the person on the street? What about the child? What about the orphan? And there's a Hashem, I believe that if we start thinking about the other, not just as, oh, I'm such a nice person because I care about people, but I am obligated both on a national level and an individual level, I believe that together we can make an impact. Together we can change the tide of society so that when, when we go to sleep at night, we can rest assured that the societal issues that we face today don't need to be inherited for tomorrow. I want to just thank you so much for all coming. Uh, I will stick around. If there are any questions, comments, concerns, me, please me, feel me. free. Okay. Me. Mar <laughs> Margaret, please go ahead. I think, uh, Rabbanit, you are amazing. I'm going to say I'm Ashkenazi. As the Habura Don't worry, it's, it's not a genetic disease. So am I. <laughs> Though I have I, to say, we do carry a lot more genetic diseases than Svaladim. <laughs> okay, I, I think that what you were saying about the Svadi Poskim and the Svadim, um, the Barbanel and, and all of them, Svadim have traditionally lived in society, in a multinational, multiracial society. They never, as far as I know, put themselves apart. The Ashkenazi, uh, let's not use the word Haredi, but it's the most uh, generic word. They love to put themselves apart um, because that's what they do. Um, and so the questions of how you support your fellow human being are less important to them as long as they support their own. So what you've said this evening is absolutely revelationary to me. The Givonim, you say that to support all citizens, but the Givonim were not citizens. I mean, they, and, and therefore, the, the, what, what you say and what your Poskim, what the Sfati Poskim say is so amazing because I, I give you cases in, in Israel where they have problems right now of, the, um, of all the workers who are definitely not citizens, and the squalor, to use your word from before, that they live in, in Tel Aviv, and whose, whose, whose responsibility are they? They're good enough to do the work, but they're not good enough to be lo looked after in a decent manner. And um, I think that the reason to support the, all these people who have who died and killed is, and the, the reason that Jews have to look after them is, shalom. you've got to do it. And so everything you've said this evening has been amazing and wonderful. And um, I just wish, you know, you are a breath of fresh air and I just wish your voice could be heard in modern Israel. Thank you. Margaret, uh, thank you for your kind words. And I believe it's, it's people like you that inspire people like me um, <laughs> to be able to, to be able to probe and to think. And I think you, you, you highlighted something very important, you know, both in Ashkenaz, um, and, and to be fair, Ashkenaz history is very difficult. I don't know how anything good ever came out of there because most of the time it was, are we going to survive the Kazakhs? Are we going to survive the Cantonists? Are we going to be thrown out of our country today, tomorrow? There was so much chaos. I happen to think that the both the Orthodox world and the Reform world believe the same thing, which is neither of them believe that Judaism is compatible with the rest of the world. So the Orthodox pull is let's detach from society, create our own enclaves, disconnect anything that the outside world does by definition is bad. We want nothing to do with them. You know, you grow up and you, unfortunately, you, you see a church, you spit at it. You see somebody non-Jewish. There's obviously some expletives you say, because the separation has to be not just so total, but there has to be good and bad. And they always have to be bad. Um, 
the other side is the reform, which is Judaism is not compatible with the rest of the world. So let's drop the Jewish part and acclimate and kind of fit in. I believe that, again, in the Sephardic world, there was that balance of we know who we are as a people, but yet we also thoroughly understand, you know, the Kuzari, who talks about this symbiotic relationship between the Jewish people and the rest of the world. Some will say, you know, the Jewish people are the brain power. And I don't mean because we get a bunch of Nobel Prizes, right? But we're, we're, if we've gotten the guide, the Torah, so then we're meant to navigate the world. But a brain sitting in a jar on somebody's desk is not a functional body. That's just, it's good for science. A brain or the heart, okay, so the heart pumps life. But again, what good is a heart without the rest of the body? And I believe the Chachamim had this understanding that there has to be a homogenous world with, of course, we do different things. That's okay. The fact that we know how to so strongly be ourselves gives us the independence and the, the strength to then go out and explore the other because okay. there's not so much of the other. So thank you so much, Margaret, um, for highlighting that. Uh, any other questions? Likewise. Any other questions, comments, concerns? Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you again to the Chavura, to, like I said, Rabbi Dweck, uh, Sina Avi and Ohad, who's our man on ground, and especially to the Halevi family, who've all been sitting there so quietly. Thank you so much. And Bezat Hashem, I'm looking forward to seeing you all again. Your thank son you so much. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming, and stay tuned for the other shooting. Good night. Thank, thank you. you.